Leadership is about accepting and demanding that it could be another way, that there's hard work that could be done where we could make things better by taking a path that isn't as direct. So it was 15 years ago in this very town that uh, our guest today, Seth Godin, was nice enough to pick me up at the train station to attend a seminar which he was putting on. Uh, I joined that seminar as a result of reading an article in, uh, that Seth wrote in Fast Company magazine where he was touting this concept uh, called the purple cow. I bought it lock, stock, and barrel, including the milk carton and all the rest. I came here and I started to learn from Seth as I have done very consistently over these last 15 years, and I am uh, honored to be here with Seth. Everybody says that when they meet Seth, so I'm not <laughs> going to go on much more with that. But I want to remind Seth of something else we did together and see if he remembers. In 2005, he wrote an article for CNN about marketing, talking, calling all marketers liars. And Seth, do you remember the restaurant in New York, which you referred to with the $300 sushi? Uh, I do remember the restaurant, yes. Right. And my conundrum was I was so inspired by Seth at that point, and at that point didn't want to come and come all the way here and attend another seminar, but thought I might be able to, in essence, bribe Seth. And I invited him to lunch at Masa in New York City. We went in. I remember his seersucker suit. Uh, and we sat with Masa. It was only us. And we had this two-hour conversation. Well, getting two hours of Seth's time at that day was, was a rarity. Uh, and I learned a heck of a lot, plus had the most amazing sushi lunch I'd ever had. Since then, continued to learn, and we come to today. Seth, when you wrote about the purple cow, the concept that I come away with, or came away with and stick to to this day, is the notion of remarkability and of standing out in a commodified world. Mm -hmm. Is that pretty close, as you would like the listener to understand it? I've added a layer of nuance to it over time, but I think that, uh, you know, whenever that was, 2003, that was the essence of what I was getting at. I think the nuance is, it's not up to you if you're remarkable. It's up to them. Mm -hmm. You can, I mean... the. A lot of people think that I'm in charge of what's remarkable and not, so they send me email about it. Please don't send me email about it. And I point out to them, it's not up to me. It's up to the person who is choosing to remark. And what that means is a, a level of radical empathy is required. You don't get to do this because uh, it's important to you. It will work because it's important to them. Mm. Got it. And you, st and you hold to that these days is. I'm as more than ever. That's day, what the right? marketing seminar is all about. Exactly. Exactly. Now, as I was thinking about ways to approach what I initially learned from you, this notion of remarkability, which you even defined in the book as worthy of remark, the idea that you would be talked about for any set of reasons. Mm -hmm. Could be you were the most of this or the least of that. Right. Right. Very clear about that. The 
thing that I feel I must ask is, do you add any filter or a different kind of notion, given that the most remarkable person today who gets talked about the most is the president, is that he is, he is as purple as any cow I've ever thought about. I'm curious when it gets to that type of reaction. Yeah, so let's be clear. The value judgment of better, the value judgment of moral, the value judgment of important is not included in most of my work when I'm talking about marketing. Because if I was, it would be my value judgment. Mm. When I'm doing my work about leadership, what I'm trying to say is, are you doing work that you are proud of? Are you being uh, the person in public that you can point to and say, I made a difference in the world and I'm glad that I did? And those two things have to intersect. And the reason they have to intersect is that marketing works. And we cannot deny that it works. We can't deny that it works because A, smart people spend trillions of dollars on it, but B, there's plenty of data that shows that if you do marketing well, you can change things. That means you're responsible. You don't get to use the rearview mirror and say, well, I had to do it because it was the only way to make a living. No, that's not true. There are plenty of ways to make a living. Therefore, you're on the hook. And if you do things to get elected, or you do things to defeat the opposition, or you do things to tweak people you don't like, well, marketing enabled those things to work, but you're still responsible. And I think that one of the pitfalls of democracy, as we gave everybody a media channel, is that without curation and without filters, those media channels can spiral out of control. And we end up with not only uh, outcomes that bring lots of us angst, injustice, and shame, but a lot of shoulder shrugging where people say it couldn't be any other way. And what leadership is about is accepting and demanding that it could be another way, that there's hard work that could be done where we could make things better by taking a path that isn't as direct. So this podcast that I've done is, is, is based in a fundamental mission or premise in to help the listener understand that if you want to make a true difference in your life, the, the, the worth it moments are created inside or with conversations. Now, they could be written conversations, as you are famous for, uh, in terms of the blog, in terms of your prolific book, uh, book creation. But I wanted to get in a little bit, as many people that have come at you for advice, including me, uh, and including thousands, I'm sure, of others. When you think about a good conversation, the right kind of conversation, let me put you on the spot. What are some of the attributes that you value in a conversation partner? Okay, so if I'm going to decode what a conversation is, a conversation is not an oration or a lecture. A conversation is two people engaging with full expectation that one or both of them will change their mind about something. <laughs> and it's that changing your mind about it that makes it different than a memo or different than an update. 
So if I run into someone I haven't seen in a while and she tells me about the work she's done lately, that you could call that a conversation, but it's not useful in the sense that the kind of conversation I'm talking about in which we are not only speaking but listening and probing and discovering how we could make forward motion happen, those are the magical conversations that most of us remember. Mm -hmm. For that to happen, it seems to me, a few things have to occur. One, before it begins, it's helpful if we are ready, if we are ready to be changed, not merely to change others. For me, those have been the most profound conversations. When I show up uh, willing, as my pup Baxter is willing to do, lie on your back and let someone scratch your belly, right? Like, what does it mean to be non-defensive in that setting? Number two, to have a partner who is coming at it with generosity and empathy, not with the intention of winning. And for those two reasons, there are almost no political conversations. Because political conversations require you to show up willing to accept the fact that you might not have selected the optimal path and be talking to somebody who cares more about you than they do about changing your mind. And those have always been rare. They were rare when Alexander Hamilton was getting shot and they're rare now <laughs> because that's who human beings are. And so my best conversations aren't about politics. They tend to be about art, creativity. I remember conversations vividly from 1993 about what the internet was going to become. Mm. And those kinds of conversations are inherently less defensive. And if you have them with engaged, smart people, they're thrilling. Mm. And let's be, be real clear, especially for the listener. What is so thrilling? It seems to be, if I heard it correctly... It's this notion that there is, there is change afoot. There is a chance for a, a mind and therefore the actions that follow to be changed. That's, for example, when you, when you talked in 93 about the internet, do you recall that being your purpose, your intention of being in those conversations was to be around change? Well, I was causing change in 91. I was really early. And I knew that I was turning on lights for some people I, about email. I was one of the pioneers of email marketing. Uh, I didn't understand the World Wide Web. I didn't understand how profound the shifts were. But I did in 93 and 94, again, really early, because I listened to Kevin Kelly, because I sat with Steve Case, because I was present when things were going through this shift and I was listening and those moments. So why is it so profound? The doorbell rings and someone says, here's a reciprocating skill saw with a 24 volt lithium battery. You've never heard of a reciprocating skill saw, but you're a home contractor. And for the next 10 years of your life, this saw is gonna make it so you can get every project done in half the time. And that means you can bid more aggressively and get better projects and become more efficient in your work. All because someone rang your doorbell and handed you a reciprocating 24-volt lithium uh, circulating saw, reciprocal saw. So the point is that that's what happens professionally in some of these conversations. And in some of these conversations, someone turns on a light and you say, oh, 
I didn't even know. I didn't know I had that lever. I didn't know I could be heard. I didn't know I could connect. I didn't know I could lead. And then suddenly you can do more generous work. That, what a gift, right? Worth way more than a saw. What a gift. And the magic of the world that I live in that so many people listening to this live in is there's a conference, there's a lecture, there's a podcast, there's something you can do that simulates that. Or you can go organize the five people who are going to meet once a week in the anthropology department at Stanford for three hours and just talk about things to turn on lights for each other. Well, that's how we stop being cavemen. That is it. That's the method. Sitting, literally sitting and talking, and most importantly, listening. Listening with an openness to not figure out what to say next, but to say, might that be true? What would happen if I tried that on? Mm. And trying it on, you know, watching, you know, if you go to uh, a nice clothing store and you walk, watch somebody, and I've seen this just a couple of times, somebody who's not used to being a white collar worker, but who's, you know, come out of college or gotten promoted and they're trading in their polyester shirt for a shirt that makes them walk differently, feel differently. It's not better to wear a certain kind of clothes, but it's different. What does it feel like to be different like that and to see yourself in the mirror like that? Well, I think conversations can offer that if you have them for the right reason with the right people. Yeah. Let's talk for a second about, or more than a second, about technology and conversation. Mm -hmm. As you just pointed out quite accurately, uh, in following you, you were on to a lot of this technology very early. You taught me and millions of others probably about the right way to use email marketing versus the wrong way. Great book called Permission Marketing. Changed the way I think a lot about just dealing with people in general. My point, though, is if we stay to this notion that human conversation is the foundation of real change, what do you see with your perspective on all of this as to, the, as to any valuable role, I want to stress the word valuable, that technology can play in helping conversation because there's a lot of noise about how it doesn't. Sure. Interesting uh, side fact, at Disney World in Disneyland, the costumed characters need security guards. That Tigger and the rest, when they're walking around, need to be followed by a guard. And the reason is that people, not just kids, were hurting them. They were pinching them. They were hitting them. And I've thought about this, and I actually saw it happen, which made me start thinking about it. And I've come to the conclusion that in that setting, people think that because the other person is wearing a mask, they are invisible. And that's obviously completely backwards, but they are acting like they are wearing a mask. Yesterday, I was in New York City, and a guy walked into a public space wearing a mask. And... Uh, a security guard followed the person in and asked the guy to take the mask off. We are uh, really hesitant around people in masks. Either we're mean to them or we think they're going to be mean to us. And the internet is nothing but a lot of people in masks. And that is, it's, some people think it's saving grace. I have never felt that. I felt like anonymity was the biggest problem online and has always been. And anonymity causes people to act 
poorly. That the people who are writing one-star reviews, the people who are trolling your restaurant on Yelp, the people who are uh, hurling invective at one another, the trolls, would never do it if they had to sit with you face-to-face as a person who knew who they were. Never. So don't go to those spaces if you want to have a conversation because you won't have one. Instead, figure out who you can have a conversation with. And the fact that it's electronic isn't important at that moment. What's important is the two of you both decided that you could have a conversation in this medium. Mm. So the magic of my blog, you know, I get something out of it writing it even if no one reads it. But the magic of reading it is it's like we're having some version of a conversation. I am not listening to you, and it's clear I'm not listening to you. (laughs) But you might want to listen to me. And if you listen to me with a certain mindset, well, 7,000 posts later, I might have changed your mind about something for free. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm trying to do. And I don't write my blog anonymously for a reason, which is I want you to know I stand for what I wrote. And you don't have to like what I wrote. You don't have to accept what I wrote. But at least you know someone's been showing up every day for 20 years saying something, and your mileage may vary, but here he is. Mm -hmm. And it is worth noting, as obviously a follower of your blog and listening to your caveat at the beginning, that you do not allow for comments, uh, responses. There is no, and I think it's a great idea, it makes the reading a lot easier. It makes the connection quote unquote, with you a lot easier, that all of the invective and the criticism, many people have killed comments, right? Because it really isn't, I may even disagree with you a little bit, it isn't a conversation. It isn't even close to most people who read these things, right? However, it does function, to your point, as a vehicle of change if the people enter into the reading in the right, in the right spirit. Well, let me ask you then this. Uh, called it putting you on the spot. And I've written you a a, a couple times about uh, blogs you've written. Uh, And as I was driving up here today, I was thinking about what are the blogs that stick out the most for me? And the way that I define that is I make reference to them with my clients. Okay. The clients that pay me to coach them on how to engage in worthy change. What are the Seth Godin references I make. Forget how many purple cow books I sold. Forget all that kind of stuff. (laughs) Very proud to do that. But there are two that I'd appreciate, if you remember them, uh, to comment on. The first one you've taught me uh, through your writing, uh, which you call Shun the Non-Believers. Right. Right? Talk about a help. Because I used to think I could change people. I used to think that if I did everything right and I spoke right and I was interesting enough, I could change people. But then there were people who didn't like me, who found me too, somebody said, pugnacious in my work. I eventually took that as a compliment. But talk to the listener who's trying to find their way in a world of influence, which is what we're all doing. You know, Dan Pink says, you know, to sell is human. We're all doing it, and you're going to get rejected. How does shunning the non-believer help that? Okay, well, there's a lot of layers and complications here. Let me, let me try a few ways to approach it. Uh, a story I like to tell is uh, there's a stand-up comic, top of his game, used to be, 
doing very well, but now fading, says to his agent, get me more gigs. The agent gets a gig in New York, which is hard to get because it's not even an airplane flight. Comedian shows up, uh, he's sort of late, gets there at the last minute, goes on stage. He's doing his best stuff, just digging deep, doing his best stuff. No one's laughing. No one. He's dying, completely dying on stage. Gets off at the end of the set. He's distraught. He's ready to quit the game. And then he finds out that his agent didn't do enough research. Everyone in the audience was on a tourist junket from Italy, and no one speaks English. He had just done a set of his best material in English to a group of people who don't speak English. So the question is, in that setting, should the comedian be upset with himself about his work? Well, I think we can all agree, no. Wrong people, wrong day. They didn't get it. Wasn't there for them. Fine. That doesn't mean you're a bad comic. It means your agent should have told you that people in the room were Italian. Well, that's what a non-believer is. Someone who doesn't speak your language and doesn't want to. Somebody who's not going where you're going. That you might be really good at knowing your way around town, but if you walk up to someone in town and give them directions to Main Street, but they weren't lost, you haven't done anything good for anybody. And so we begin with the idea that enrollment from the person you seek to serve is critical. That it doesn't make sense to judge yourself based on what someone who doesn't want what you have thinks of your work. And then the second part is that there's no such thing as the mass market. Mm. That Beyonce has a huge hit and only 4% of the people in America buy a copy. 96% don't. People say they love my work and they're glad I do what I do. 98% of the people in this country have never heard of me. My, my name has never been mentioned in front of them. Right? Fine. The mass market is completely overrated. It doesn't mean anything to have the number one TV show. That doesn't mean you're better. It just means that you appeal to more than a few people, but still not everyone. So instead of being, as Zig would say, a wandering generality, you have the chance to be a meaningful specific. But if you're going to be a meaningful specific, please understand that that means you don't appeal to very many people, yeah. and that's okay. And the corollary to that, I sent a quote, I sent one of your quotes to a client yesterday who is actually talking to his therapist along with me because the therapist says the, the reason you're not leading well is because you want everyone to like you. You had a quote in Purple Cow, which, which I've used, that basically says that um, something, to the, something to the effect of uh, anyone who's trying to make a difference in the world are basically going to have people that don't like them. That, that putting out a point of view, leading in essence, you are always, that means if you've got detractors, that means that you're actually making a difference. But let's differentiate one small thing here which is that if you insist on leading everyone, mm. then the number of detractors goes way up. On the other hand, if you show up and say, I'm walking to Santa Monica, who wants to come? The people who come are likely to want to go to Santa Monica. And so it's voluntary. And the difference between leadership and management is simple. Management is mandatory. Leadership is voluntary. Yeah. And don't confuse the two. Got it. Okay. I'm looking at the book on your shelf behind you that this next point comes from. I said it was a blog, but it was actually from Small is the New Big. Which is a collection of blog posts. So you're right about so both. So I'm close. There well, I'm go. close. 
And this is the blog, the reference I make with clients that I have never seen people, to quote my late mother, seen people itch in their chair so much <laughs> because of the discomfort of considering it. So here's the setting. I'm in a room with a, with a team that has hired me for my concept I call constructive candor. Okay. So in constructive candor, it is the notion that you pull the Band-Aid say the hard thing, and then stick around with your listening and your questions to help people arrive at some truth. Somebody raises their hand before I pull out this blog reference, and they say, well, if I do that, I'm going to get fired. Mm -hmm. And every time somebody says that, the, the, the synapse goes off in my head, small as the new big guillotine or the rack. Now that, when I reread it the other night on the way here, that's not what you wrote it about. You wrote it about a company, an enterprise, refusing to take a risk. Right. I have adopted it to human beings taking a risk. And the notion of how, how do you want to feel at work, right? So think about it. If, I hear you. If, you're, if your boss is an asshole, Right. And you're taking it and you're taking it. And you're saying, yeah, but you're on. And I'm going to shut up and let you explain the concept because it certainly is one of my favorites. Talk about the difference between the guillotine and the rack. All right. Well, that was 10 years ago. So I'll try to remember because you've read it more recently than me. But I bet you'll get it. My memory is uh, if you're going to die, it's way more pleasant to die by the guillotine than die by the rack. And the idea that you should quietly watch Western Union or uh, the Cleveland Plains dealer become irrelevant and then fade away with all the layoffs and the stress and the tension, why don't you just shut down the division and open this other division where you have a chance to grow? Because you're going to have to do something sooner or later anyway. That's clear. Every smart person can see the direction that's going here. But... When I think about this candor concept and the boss that's going to fire me, I, I want to make two points there. First point is this. It's really unusual for a successful, productive, white-collar person to get fired for behavior that supports the mission of the organization. They can get censured for it, but it's really unlikely that they're going to get fired. And I think we catastrophize some of this as a way of hiding. But the other thing that's really important that is probably in your work, but of course I'm not aware of it, is the idea of enrollment. That it is way better to pull the Band-Aid from someone who has opted in to having you pull the Band-Aid than it is to just walk up to somebody and pull the Band-Aid. And so you don't want to use candor as a crutch to um, act like a jerk. That, in fact, what you want to be able to do is work with people where it is expected, understood, and in fact embraced that the way we do things around here is with a form of generous truth-telling that saves us a lot of time and energy. And if you have a boss that hasn't enrolled in that journey it's probably not a good idea to just enroll her in it anyway. It's probably a good idea to figure out small steps that get you to the place where there is active enrollment in that. So one of the things I've written about 
is how stupid the annual review is. That we, you know, we wait 300 days nursing stuff, and then we figure out how to sugarcoat it, and then we figure out how to make, and by the time the year is up, it's too late, right? That what we need are weekly reviews or daily reviews. That if you get a job where the boss says, and every Thursday, I'm going to give you direct feedback about how the last week went. Now you've got opt-in on the Band-Aid thing, right? And vice versa. But it doesn't make sense to have it be this dramatic edge case. It has to be, this is what we do around here. And if you're enrolled in that, we're going to be able to do great together. Right. And by doing it more often, you practice it more, it takes out the mystique and the fear right. a lot more. There are, there are many reasons to, at a minimum, I've, I've converted half a dozen clients in the past year to quarterly reviews instead of annual reviews. We're on, our, we're on the right direction. There you go. That's for sure. Okay. Um, let's look forward now, mm-hmm. right? And we'll begin to conclude. I recall in listening to you speak, obviously, a, a few times, that you have views, as you did in 91 and 93, you have views of the future, you find the time somehow that everybody else wishes that they did to, as I wrote here, pick up your gaze. And I am curious what you see in two ways ahead, okay? Not only for yourself, because here we are, the blog continues, you're uh, provided some different learning platforms, which I'm happy to have, have reference to, but people ask me, am I going to do this the rest of my life? Right? Because I'm good at it and love it, it's a calling, all that. I'm curious how you think about your future, or do you? Yeah, I have for years and years, um, because I comment on the medium that I work in. And so I see, because I focus on it so much, things changing in my medium before most people do. Right. So I started talking about the death of books and newspapers in 1994, mm. right? And to be in the business of books and talking about the death of books isn't a comfortable thing, right? And it turns out that lots of, they, they say the death of blank is greatly exaggerated. It's not greatly exaggerated, it's just slightly accelerated. Mm. So when television came along, people said radio is going to die. And they were right. They were just 45 years too early, 50, 70 years too early. But radio is going to die. Just it's going to last a lot longer than you think. Wolfman Jack managed to last the whole time. And I think what happened was that I was present at just the right age for four or five important revolutions. And they happened all in a swirl in a 10-year period. And I talked a lot about most of them. And then we don't get another revolution of that magnitude that most of us can do something about for a while. So what I say to people about who ask about the next big thing is this is the next big thing. The massive peer-to-peer connection, the ability that everyone can publish, the death of traditional curated scarce publishing, uh, and the ability to outsource almost everything. So if you do average work for average people, you're in big trouble. So... All of those things were true when I first wrote about them in 93, 95, and they're still true. So it's been, how do we comment on that and, and work with that over the last 20-something years? 
The next revolution, the one I've been writing about more lately, is um, it is inevitable that artificial intelligence is going to accelerate the death of certain kinds of jobs that we already knew were going to go away. Uh, There are two and a half million people in America who make a living driving a vehicle. In 10 years, vehicles are going to drive themselves. It's safer, it's more efficient, it's faster, it's cheaper. So two and a half million people got to find a new thing to do. That uh, the call center has to go away. The call center, which is again, another half million people, whatever, it's going to be replaced. So go down this list, radiology. Radiology is going to go away. We, computers are going to read x-rays better than trained radiologists any day now. So if you have a choice between a hand-read radiological report or an accurate one, everyone's going to pick the accurate one, right? So it's not this is going to be forced on us. We're, all, we're just going to keep choosing it over and over again. So that's the next revolution that I see, but we can't do anything about it. <laughs> Other than figure out how to be more human, it's different than the last bunch of revolutions because the last bunch of revolutions open doors for humans to do all sorts of interesting things. And the next one is going to be a different sort of thing. It's going to be a efficient paved road toward a world where you don't have a job. And that's going to require a lot of thinking about what am I going to do all day? And it's going to require society to figure out how to figure out how to get us all food and shelter because we're not going to be able to add value like we used to at scale. And um, I'm not that kind of sociological uh, top-down thinker, so I'm not going to be able to contribute insight there, but I certainly see it coming. Mm. I was going to say, for those like me and, and like others who care a lot about what you see, uh, as reticent as I know you are to just give advice, um, what advice do you have? Not necessarily for the people who won't be able to drive anymore, but, but as, a, as a framework to think about one's future employment-wise, given that there won't be, that jobs will change, so much changes. What would you tell someone to be thinking about? Well, the shift has been on for years that it's better to satisfy wants than needs. That, you know, when I do work in India or Kenya, you need to sell people what they need. Water, shelter, health care. Because that's all their resources to pay for. But in Western cultures, privileged uh, communities, people are paying way more for what they want than what they need. You don't want to sell people water when you can sell them a life-changing experience because they can afford it and they'll pay for it. Going forward, it becomes even more urgent. Not only are you selling people what they want, but you're selling them a want that they can't get from anybody but you. And that means creating an asset of relationship, of trust, of impact that can't easily be replicated, whether it's by a a server farm or by somebody else who read your book and wants to go do what you do, right? That um, that has been brainwashed out of us from first grade on, and we have to figure out how to avoid what we got taught we were supposed to do and instead do the thing, A, that we want to do, and that B, people value more. Yeah. Well, by the time this podcast runs, which is about a month from today, uh, everybody or anybody who follows it will know that you 
uh, are my last guest, uh, at least for a while, because I promised my older daughter and my two friends who have died that I would write the book. And you have said to me in offhanded emails, just write a book for yourself, do that. And I'm, I'm making this commitment on the air Yay. Uh, and, and all the rest. And it's part of my own reminding system. But I want to, so you were purposely the last guest uh, of this uh, because except for my rabbi and except for my doctor, uh, nobody has been more influential in my career wow, than, you. than you and your writing. Uh, but there's, a, there's a, a quick story I want to share as we close. I was reviewing some of our old email uh, the other day, back when we went to Massa. And <clears throat> I came out of that all full of vim and vigor about an idea, as so many people I'm sure do, having been around you and all the rest. And of course, it ground down to a halt of being busy and all the rest. And then I got re-fired up again, and I wrote you. And you demonstrated in the email two things that I will always remember about the right way to treat people. Number one, you were responsive. And as many times as you say, don't write me emails, people still write you emails. And you answer every email. That day, when I asked you, not a great question. You said to me, Drew, I'm swamped. I got, basically you had to go. We weren't gonna talk for a while. I had to get to work. And since then I have built this coaching practice beyond anybody's dream. And now I'm gonna take what you've taught me and turn it to creating something even more important. Wow. So for that, and for going to Masa with me, I haven't been back since. Uh, I thank you, well, and I thank, thank you, you for welcoming me here to your headquarters and helping me get this technology set up. <laughs> you should have seen it, folks. Anyway, Seth, keep reading, uh, keep reading Seth Godin. It is life-changing, to say the least. So thank you very that much. That means the world to me. Thank, thank you, you, Drew. Thank, thank you for the work you do and the connections you make and for keeping your promise and writing this book. Absolutely. Thank you.